and a habitual approach to life being contrary to creativity and spontaneity and innovation is another one of these broken paradigms. And fundamentally, creating the lattice work of structure and habits in your life that make results automatic mm-hmm. is the foundation that you build incredible innovation and creativity on. So in my life, Eric, I do as much as I can to in, in essence automate the results that I always want to have, things around health, things around mindfulness, things around, you know, da- daily disciplines that are important to me. Mm-hmm. And the better you can get at creating habits and rhythms about your life that are again become automatic, those things compound so much over time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. As you may know, Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience and we challenge ourselves to think, question, and synthesize wherever curiosity takes you. It is our job to provide blueprints for others to learn and lead to have a more fulfilling life. In today's podcast, we are joined by Zach White. He is the founder and coach of Oeko, the Oasis of Courage. The business was born out of his passion for helping people push past their fears and find the edge of possibility in their life, business, and career. Doesn't matter how successful or how stuck you may feel, everyone needs a great coach. Zach began his career as a mechanical engineer at the World Tour Corporation and holds his BSME from Purdue University and an MSME from University of Michigan. His career shifted to global marketing from the KitchenAid brand before leaving the organization to found OECO and finished a certification as a knowledge-based professional coach, KBPC, with the renowned coach instructor, Lenny Wildflower. And in this conversation, we go really deep into Zach's reasoning for founding OECO his own personal journey of why all of this to lead a more fulfilling life and well-being is essential to organizing your own pathway in life. And even though we're both technical professionals, we both have engineering backgrounds, and Zach tries to create this engineering blueprint for lifestyle design, this conversation is much more broader than that. And we just try to make this approachable to an engineering or technical audience in that way. But there's still so much to take away from this conversation. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Zach White. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. Today's guest, we are joined by Zach White. Hey, Zach. Hey, Eric. How are you, man? Pretty good. This is really awesome, you know being in the middle of December here, it's gets a little crazy with the holidays, but carving out time to make these conversations. And it's just uh, a lot of fun to do this. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. No better time, right? The most wonderful time of the year. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) So go ahead and let's start with your current background, because I'm sure we'll unpack the previous background as part of this conversation. So what do you do right now? Or what are you focusing most on? Right now, Eric, I am growing my own company. Just started full-time into the world of entrepreneurship in 2019. And the company is called Oeco. 
And I like to think of myself as a lifestyle engineer. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is bringing the skill sets of career success and life success together and helping other people reach a new level, find their next level. So I'm a, I'm a coach, man. I'm a high performance coach building programs and building tools for, you know, engineers and technical professionals Mm -hmm. again to get to the next level. And so it is an incredibly exciting time for me because scaling that business has been my sole focus here in 2019 and will continue to be uh, moving forward in the 2020, man. Nice. So where, where did that become the logical decision for you? Because it doesn't sound, I mean, it's not a normal path that most of us would take, at least into lifestyle design. And that's more of a, a new term, probably, I don't even know, maybe 10 years I've kind of started hearing mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. It's not very, very w- widely talked about yet. Maybe more so in like Silicon Valley area, but not here, out here in the Midwest so much. Yeah. You know, Eric, I'm not sure that there's anything logical about it. <laughs> uh, and I, but, but, you know, to answer the question, how did I get here? And, and part of it's connected to my journey, but in mm-hmm. a way, my personal passion and purpose in life has always been triggered more on helping other people find their way mm-hmm. than on any specific, you know, corporate or financial type of reward. And I loved engineering. I love marketing. And I know we'll talk a little bit about my, my background and my story. Business is such an incredibly fun platform mm-hmm. to do meaningful work, but coaching and lifestyle design and bringing my background as an engineer into that space and, you know, mm-hmm. creating this, this concept of lifestyle engineering, it, it was more thrust upon me than <laughs> something that logically made sense. You know, there was so many people asking me questions and seeking out the coaching and the insight that I, I kind of would say, you know, destiny found me around this space mm-hmm. and would not be happier to be doing it, to be honest. Yeah. It's really those things. It's just a meandering path. And all of a sudden you just kind of wake up one day and you're like, oh, I guess this is what I'm doing now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love what you said there. One of my best friends, he, he calls it wayfinding. Oh, cool. And it, it's a it's a nice metaphor to what you're describing. Like sometimes, Eric, we just don't know what's going to come around the next corner mm-hmm. and it's not going to be logical. You just got to you got to make decisions and go try things. And oh, yeah. again, li- life has a way of unveiling the path if we'll just keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why, you know, this podcast has many themes behind it, but one of them, the, the, the cornerstone of it is exploring the precarity of human experience. And, you know, it's precarious, right? The, is that word precarity? And it's the random events that happen in your life and you don't have a chance. You don't realize where it's taking you until you reflect on it. And that's where, yeah. you know, it's reflection is kind of the most powerful tool that we can have because it, it shines a light on the trajectory that, you know, why we end up where we are in some ways. So for that, where did your love of system building start? Like, did it start like engineering for a lot of people starts at a really, really young age. And was that something for you? Yeah, no question. I, I'm that guy. You know, my my dad and I used to sit in the basement and build circuits. Okay. My dad was a he was a PhD electrical engineer, okay. smart guy, and you know, I grew up in the engineering in the engineering mindset. Mm-hmm. And typical story, right? I was good at math and science. I had an inclination to want to know how things work, mm-hmm. and had that analytical, logical approach to life. 
you know, no emotional <laughs> intelligence at all in the early years uh, of my life. But, but yeah, I, I found my way into the space the way a lot of people do. You know, you're, you're good at math and science. You want to go into a, a profession that pays well. And everybody says, hey, you should be an engineer. And my dad was an engineer, so, so it made perfect sense. You know, my idea of rebellion was to do mechanical engineering instead of electrical engineering. Right? That was <laughs> That was my, you know, what way to stick it to the man when I was in high school. But how, how do I differentiate yeah, I, myself from my dad, basically? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I want to follow in his footsteps, so I'll be a mechanical engineer, right? <laughs> but, but yeah, I went to Purdue and studied in me and, and got into the world of systems and structure and mm-hmm. process, right? Uh, as an engineer, that world is, is natural, it's home base, and it, quite frankly, was a place I was very good. I, I had great success in school. I loved engineering school. Purdue was an incredible place to, mm-hmm. to study engineering. And it just fed that love of, you know, when, when you really see end to end what's going on in a particular process and you can learn how to solve problems mm-hmm. the way that engineers are trained, it opens the doors to so many different things. And it's a skill set I will always be happy to have, even though I'm not doing engineering work today. Yeah. I, I mean, personally myself, you know, I, I'm an engineer as many people on this podcast already know, at least professionally. And I, I really truly think of engineering as a problem solving lens. Like it really doesn't matter what brand of engineering you pick at the end of the day. It's more of just specialized knowledge that gets overlaid on the type of problems you solve uh, grand scheme. But what it winds up doing, I think is Engineering is the the bubbling up of the practical application of high level math. Basically, it's it's taking chemistry, physics, mathematics, and all of that, and saying how do we really solve real problems in the real world, and do it cost effectively, or at least as practically as possible, and then iterate. <laughs> and so I yeah, I, I, yeah. I do really un- I get that and understand it, and I I think having that lens really does lend itself to not only entrepreneurship but also being able to look at things broadly, you know, the systems thinking like everyone likes to talk about nowadays is a little buzzwordy. So I don't know if you want to expand on any like systems thinking ideas or principles that have worked for you, at least as an engineer initially. Sure, man. I mean, you're right. It is, it is buzzwordy. And (laughs) to be honest, a lot of people, when you say systems engineering, Mm -hmm. probably have no clue what they're actually talking about, but it sounds great in a meeting, right? Impress your boss. Mm -hmm. But, but no, I think there's so much truth to the reality that the world we live in all around us all the time is a, a system of systems. And the more that you can see that and, you know, as you, it kind of opens your eyes to what's happening, the more you can begin to influence those systems. So Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example uh, how this comes to life, right? And how much we take it for granted, I think is what is compelling to me. Most of us probably own a car and every day we go out to the garage or to the parking lot and, you know, we, we push a button on this little thing in our pocket and the door unlocks, or we walk up to the car and, and actually just touch the handle, the door unlocks. We get in, we turn the key and and the engine starts and we put it in, (laughs) put it in gear and it drives us. And all of this happens by habit automatically with no effort whatsoever on your part. And we just say, yeah, it's a car. But then one thing breaks on the car. One thing breaks. You go push the button and the door doesn't unlock. Mm -hmm. Like it sends us into this instant rage about 
how cars are pieces of crap and, or, or, you know, the, the transmission fails Mm -hmm. and suddenly you're out 1500 bucks or more. And you know, your car's in the shop and like your whole life comes off the tracks. Well, that system of systems, your car, when one of the systems breaks, it throws us in a complete tailspin that we don't know operate in our life anymore. And it's like, there are, unbelievable numbers of systems moving all around us all the time. And when they don't do what you expect them to do, we call those problems. <laughs> and, and the more visibility you have to what those are and the more you, you, you know, can exert your control over those, the, the more you can open doors that in the past maybe were closed to you. So I think to your point, the, the engineering skill set, the engineering mindset, allows you to look at all kinds of problems in a new way, whether it's, you know, I'll even be as bold as to say relationship problems, if it's business problems or if it's engineering problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually resonate that with pretty hard because when I first started doing my engineering uh, degree, when you're learning fundamentals, especially like Ohm's law and some of the electrical stuff, I started taking that to the, to the first principles thinking, right? So there's another buzzword and I was like, okay, so if I'm going to learn how to do this stuff, I want to be able to understand how to like solve the, the problems that have already been solved, right? Like how do you build a power supply? Like that's where I kind of went with stuff because I wanted to be able to understand, you know, the foundational things that it seems like our society is built on that almost 90% of us take for granted, right? Like, like you're saying, that's basically what you're saying is all this technology we just take for granted because it is engineered in such a way that it just works. And it's so useful that when it doesn't work like we expect it to anymore, we get really frustrated. I actually just had this conversation earlier today with my coworker talking about internet speed. You know, when your like phone takes like 30 seconds yeah. longer or not even 30 seconds longer, like two seconds longer to load a web page, you get really like annoyed at it. You're like, I don't know what's going on with my phone. Internet sucks here. <laughs> like, Absolutely. It, it's so, it's, it's really funny. You know, this cognitive like blinders, I guess. I don't even know what the word, like the right word would be. Cause it's just kind of, we just take for granted technology and it's, it's an elegance in the system though, because we do have all of this technology that does allow, I mean, even for this conversation to happen, I'm using my phone right now to talk to you a couple hundred miles away and it just works. Like we just press some buttons and schedule the meeting and all of a sudden everything, it just happens. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah. And Eric, what a, it's such a privilege to be able to be a part of the intersection of technology and design mm-hmm. in a way where these things become seamless in our lives, mm-hmm. right? That, that is really special. And to your point, it's so automatic. It's so taken for granted. And that is the result of an unbelievable, tremendous effort of engineers and designers and, mm-hmm. and you know, marketers and everybody to, to do these things. So it, it really is fantastic to, to see the output of the creative energy of of human thought yeah. and technology and science. Just awesome. It, I, yeah, <laughs> it is for me. I, I get fascinated by this stuff and I do want to recommend a book for you really quick because I do think you'll probably get a lot of, out of it. It's called the dream machine by M Mitchell Waldrop. And it's basically the story of JCR Licklider, who is like the Johnny Appleseed of the guy who created help create computers and the internet. He worked for ARPA and then, that became the ARPANET and then the internet afterwards. And he basically helped fund all the universities and just fostered creativity within people to make what today and all this hardware that we're using today to talk to each other. And also 
even some of the early theories of what the internet could be like, basically. It's a really fascinating book. And as an engineer, if I ever had the ability to teach a classroom of entry-level engineering students or computer science majors, I would make them read that book. <laughs> like that's, sounds, It sounds great, man. I'm it, putting it on my list right now. It's awesome. I loved it so much and I have it all over my website. I've like excerpted it like crazy, but I think you'd get a lot of value from it. So back to your story. How, how did your change or how did your idea of lifestyle design turn into this ability that I would rather help other people than make products? Because I'm assuming you, you left college and, and started at a company and were part of a design team of some sort or another. So where does the post-college life continue? Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you kind of the arc of the story, mm -hmm. Eric, and stop me at any point if you want to dive in. But mm -hmm. I did exactly what you said. I did the ME degree at Purdue and then took a role with Whirlpool Corporation and joined one of their, you know, rotational leadership development programs. Felt extremely honored to be chosen for that. I did four, four jobs in six months each mm -hmm. to get an, some exposure around the company, working on all kinds of major appliances and and was having a ball. Did go back and do my master's in mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan. Oh, and cool. then did the exact kind of thing a lot of, you know, high powered, successful, achievement driven people do, which is started working my ass off. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, it was rewarding because I was good at work and people were giving me the affirmation of great job. This is good. We, you know, do more of that. We want to see that again. And it's the first time in your life, you know, I'm an adult, I've got a job and people are telling me I'm doing a good thing. So you just keep going and you keep pushing. And, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. So it was easy to go spend time and energy in the place where I thought I was seeing success. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately Eric, I'll just take a long story and make it really short. <laughs> that, that mindset of just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep going, do everything I can do to achieve in the corporation mm -hmm. led to a singular focus and long hours. And I ended up one day waking up and realizing that I'm sitting across the table from a lawyer getting divorced. I'm depressed and this is not working. Mm -hmm. And I hit a really low, dark place in my life. And this was just five years out of college. And all of that energy and success that I thought I was getting suddenly became meaningless. It's like, what is going on here? And during that time, in a way, Oweko was born. I just didn't know it yet. And what I mean is, you know, I had to go deep into myself and into my faith and get back into my time with family and the things that were really important and ask some hard questions about what did I really want mm -hmm. and why was I behaving and, and putting my energy into things the way I was and ultimately took a completely different approach to career and my mindset around career after that. And, you know, the beautiful irony of life when you learn lessons the hard way sometimes was that after that point is when I got five promotions in five years, mm -hmm. saw my, my salary increase from 70 K to 170 K in that same time period. Wow. <laughs> and, and had some of the best experiences in engineering of my life. Mm -hmm. And, and the cool part was I probably 
only worked on average, you know, 45, maybe 50 hours a week. Nothing like I was doing before. I mean, of course, you have long weeks, right? There's going to be times when the project demands it. But on average, I just had this incredible balance about my life and got remarried and everything was going so great. And people started then noticing like old Zach, new Zach, what's going on? And, and so they ask questions, right? They want to know like, what's going on? How did this happen? Will you mentor me? I'd love to learn from your experience. How did you design your career path and all these things? And I started having more and more opportunity to share my story and to share my approach Yeah. and said, look, this is what I did the first time. It didn't work. This is what I've been doing the last five years. So, and, so let's go deep. Let's really paint the picture. Let's like do old Zach and we'll juxtapose it with like how your new frame. And it's obviously it's still adapting to this day because now you're committed to it full time as, as your new passion. But what was it like? Because I think this is a super important thread to pull on, especially in within the engineering and tech space, because I don't know, like before we go into the, like your specific story, but what you're saying to me, it sounds like this idea, and this comes from psychology. It's the old mantra is do more to be more, right? You have to just grind, mm-hmm. grind, grind, you know, push all day, work 14 mm-hmm. hours, do all that. And then the new paradigm, and this is what I believe, and this is where I, I, I get fired up about things. It's about being more to do more. You know, when you organize your life and you know what you stand for and get your recovery straight and you really prioritize what you value in life and understand that I can't push all the time. Right. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I want, I want you to unpack it with your own words. Yeah. And you know, Eric, earlier you mentioned the other buzzword of first principles. And what I would say is that the, the distinction you just made of being comes before doing Mm-hmm. That's the first principle that's always been true. Mm-hmm. It's just recently that we finally are getting our heads wrapped around it and it's becoming a popular message finally. Mm-hmm. But, but you're absolutely right. I, you know, what was it like? What was happening in my mind? I'll, I'll just be totally honest. I was a classic, you know, approval seeking achievement driven mm-hmm. high performer, right? And everything in my career mindset was how do I, distinguish myself from others to be the top performer on this team and to achieve incredible career results. That's what I wanted. And, and, and who does it? Everybody wants to move up and get the money and get the, the, the acclaim. And, you know, all those things sound great when you get out of college for, for a lot of us, it's why we went into such a tough major like engineering is mm-hmm. we wanted to, to go solve tough problems and get big rewards. The, the problem was, I had a a mindset that was so driven by this feedback loop of uh, acceptance and approval and reward from the company that if my boss said, Hey, thanks for coming in over the weekend to get that done. That meant one thing to me. I need to get my butt in the seat every weekend to impress my boss. So I did it. I was working all the time mm-hmm. or a, a coworker would say, Hey, can you, can you cover for me on this part of the project? Cause I've got this or that. And you would do it the first time. Cause you're not, you know, you're just trying to be nice. And then somebody says, Hey, you know, that was, that was awesome. Zach is such a reliable guy. You can always go to him. Right. And instead of setting a healthy boundary and actually working <laughs> team, 
I start just taking on anything I can get my hands on because it looks so good. So the, the do first mentality you just described was me to a T, man. And again, it was an approval seeking fixed mindset. Yeah. Ex- external I... validation, right? Exactly. Exactly. So I, but you, you did have the, the validation of, of internal, internally driven because of the way you wouldn't have been a high achiever anyways in school. So it, it had to be a trigger by, for the first time ever, getting out of an educational environment and realizing like, oh, hey, I'm different than my peers. Is that correct? Yeah. And, and here's, you know, the warning for all the smart people. Mm-hmm. My whole life, people would tell me, man, Zach, you're, you're so smart. You do so great in school. Everything comes so naturally to you. You're so gifted. You're so talented. That was meant for good. But what it did in my life was it created a belief that everything should come naturally and easily to me and that I should always be in first place, right? I I was valedictorian in my high school. I always had good grades. Everything, you know, in math and science came easy. In college, there were some tough spots, but I still got through relatively easily compared to some of my peers in terms of how hard I had to work. And so what happened, Eric, is you get into the workplace, with a mindset like that, mm-hmm. the first time you realize you don't actually know what's going on, the need to stay in that, you know, first place, this is easy. I look good. I don't want people to see me struggling here creates a real sense of uh, identity crisis and urgency yeah. to make sure that everybody knows you're the guy. And that is exactly the opposite of what you should be doing at that stage of your career. Right. Yeah. I, I couldn't completely agree with that because when I had first, it was less, less about being like that in a professional environment, but I just felt like I couldn't be emotional period. You know, part of the, part of the analytical mindset is that you, you, you hyper-rationalize just about everything. And everything you should do is should be able to be black and white and because m- emotions are messy and scary. <laughs> or mm-hmm. at least that's mm-hmm. how my younger self used to look at things. And, and I think the problem with that, especially as, as anyone who is scientific, what winds up happening is you take in your emotions and you bottle them up. And feel free, free, free to take this whenever you want. And, and you wind up just becoming like a pressure cooker and there's going to be a point where, you know, the wheels are going to fall off or you're just going to break, break down and it's going to be horrible. Right. And I saw that for myself. And part of the reason why I do this is because I needed to figure out what it meant to be vulnerable, especially as a guy and as an engineer who doesn't like emotions. Like it was really, really hard to do that. So I don't, I don't know how you helped like break that cycle. Yeah. I mean, Eric, the reality is I, I didn't until I bottled up so much that it, it created this, this catastrophe in my life. Right. And, and I agree with you that it's not intentional, but it is a consequence of spending so much of our time in engineering school, learning how to rationalize and be analytical and be logical that we pick up this idea that the world can be solved. Like it's any other type of physics problem, the Mm -hmm. world around us. And, and it, 
it in, unfortunately the world around us involves other humans and humans are emotional creatures and you can't you can't just live in that world and you can't choose to bottle up everything forever exactly like you said so <laughs> the reality i didn't figure that out until life forced me to figure that out and you know i just hope that this conversation as people hear it can encourage them not to wait until you hit that rock bottom moment to recognize that you've got to learn how to live as a whole person and your whole person is both emotional and rational and you, you have to be in touch with both sides. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is, it, it really is a lie that like this left brain, right brain thing, I like, it's a useful moniker to use to kind of understand the creative and the analytical sides of each person, but it's not really true. It's just a helpful overlay. And, and I think that was one of the things that really broke through for me. I, I listened to a podcast where they had talked about this idea of uh, Descartes error, basically. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I really resonated with that. And that kind of, kind of started peeling away layers of my, my own assumptions about how people think. And I was like, wait a minute, there's a missing half of this whole thing. Like I can be emotional and analytical at the same time, or at least overlay that. And because I really, really genuinely love connecting to people and it's stories like this that I think are really the reason why we need to be talking more especially long form with people because you don't get stories about this is what shaped me which is usually something bad where the feel like the wheels fall off the train and you got to crash and burn and build yourself back up to to actually have the real work because it's through pain that we grow. It's through pain that you realize, oh, I don't want to hurt like that ever again, or I don't want to hurt someone else because of the way I acted. Yeah, and Eric, I think it's important to to make a distinction here because you're right. The the paradigm of left brain, right brain, or emotional, rational, and and even the way I commented earlier creates this either or. Like yes. these are distinct separate. Yes. And the reality is all the time at any given moment, we are operating in both worlds Mm -hmm. and our thoughts lead to emotions. And it's the emotional energy of our life that drives our actions. Mm -hmm. And this is an all the time operating system. You don't get to choose. I'll behave emotionally now, or I'll behave rationally. Now they're always both operating. And so it's just the, it's a bad model to say that these things are separate. Yes. Cause it's, they're both always on. I, yeah, it's, it's true. And I, I think a lot of it for me with this, the mindset stuff that I've worked with and, and try to apply it's, it's being able to build broadly speaking, an awareness of your internal, you know, internal and external. How do I feel in this moment? Or how do I, you know, how does my body even feel in this moment? Like, do I feel nervous? Like, where does that coming from? Or, you know, like, can you register like when you feel yourself being elevated in some way or another, right? Like maybe your, your, your pulse is quickened and, and things like that. I think being able to build an awareness for like how you're bo- responding to the moment mm-hmm. of things mm-hmm. is, is really the distinction here because I don't think I would have the the younger me had no comprehension as to what that even would mean because it was just so, you know, subconscious that it was just like, I'm just in this moment, I'm freaking out. And I, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. So again, just, I'd encourage everyone if, if you don't, if you don't have a strong sense about the emotional side of your life, press into that. 
it, it really is important. And there, there's so many ways to do it, you know, whether it's starting, you know, most of us are engineers and academics, right? So let's read a good book, whether it's, whether it's emotional intelligence or something that you grab Daniel, uh, yeah, Goldman's work yep. uh, or others, just begin that journey. The sooner, the better. Altered traits is, I thought was a fantastic, yeah. um, also good introspection for me because I had already kind of forayed into mindfulness and meditation. That's where we're going to go next. Cause I want to see what, how you, how you think about that. Yeah. And I, and I had gotten into that, but through secondary means, I had listened to podcasts and I was listening to, you know, much like this one. And people started talking about mindfulness and meditation or, or maybe they didn't call it that, but they did something where maybe they sat like quietly for five minutes or they went on a walk outside and it, you know, you, or they go to the gym at the very least. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I, I kind of, you know, can check out when I go to the gym and I'm like, wait a minute. There's like all this patterns, you know, there's the systems level thinking like, here's this pattern that keeps coming up. And here are these CEOs and like top performers that should be busier than I, I could ever be, but yet they're making time to do nothing in quotes. Right. And as, as these analytical people doing nothing, it means you're not being productive. So go ahead and unpack what you think of like mindfulness and getting comfortable with doing nothing because that may be more productive than actually just doing something. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Eric, this is an incredibly important topic and it's culturally, I believe going to become more and more important every year as the demographic shift and as to, you know, the first generation of, pure on screen mm -hmm. internet only people are entering the workforce, et cetera. So m mindfulness, Let, let's just pose an interesting question for a moment. Mm -hmm. Why, why did nobody ever talk about mindfulness a hundred years ago? Yeah, go ahead. What are your thoughts, man? Personally, I, I think it's the over Westernization of, of science. It's we, we, we took the, an overly mechanistic view, you know, and, and we, we tried to take everything and take it, bite-sized little chunks and say, if we understand this little piece, then that'll give us why it works this way. But the problem is, I, th I think this is just me riffing here, but I think it's because of that disconnection. It's not the parts that make the whole, it's the interaction of the parts that make the emergent properties of the whole. Mm. Yeah. And, and let me build on that. So what's fascinating to me and the popularization of mindfulness as a topic in Western culture now. And the reason I think we never had to talk about it before is that the mind, as we get deeper and deeper into neuroscience and, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and just understanding the way the mind works, it seems pretty clear that it's very good at doing one thing at a time yeah. and not so good at doing a lot of things at a time. And it's also pretty clear that the really transformational things in our lives, the deep work that creates incredible results happen over extended periods of doing what a lot of people are not good at doing anymore, which is called thinking. <laughs> okay. And, and so we live in a world that is so, you know, just saturated yeah. with multitasking and inputs and short bursts and short attention spans and interruption and distraction yep. that the mind has forgotten. We, we've stopped practicing how to think about one thing long enough 
to solve the really tough problems. And that's not just engineering problems, that's relationship problems, that's, mm-hmm. you know, identity crisis problems, whatever it may be. And Any of the major the big, things. <laughs> yeah, the stuff that matters, the stuff that really matters in our lives requires the ability to think. And it's a very simple concept that the things we practice are the things that we master. And if you look at your life all day, every day, and you just ask the question, what is my mind practicing? We practice distraction. We practice mm-hmm. short little bursts. We, we're in the middle of a project at work and we're, we're letting email, G chats, text messages, phone calls, everything interrupt us every, you know, for some people, every minute, every 30 seconds, yeah. you know, you're not even, you're not even focused on the work. You're in the middle of an FMEA and you're responding to five chats at the same time. That's not work. Right. And okay? it took you two hours to do something that maybe took you a half hour if you really could just focus. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and you're not getting to the quality of deep thoughts. So, so why mindfulness? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. For me, it's, it's really a, it's a cry for what is our natural state where we should be in terms of singularity of thought, clarity of thought. And because we don't practice that in our day-to-day lives in any other format, we have to create a practice for it. It's, it's really not different than the gym. You know, before there were jobs where everybody sat at desks all day, people didn't have to go to the gym. Farmers didn't have to go to the gym. They were working out all the time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then we, we changed the culture around us to where being sedentary was normal. And then gyms became a thing. To me, it's the exact same problem with mindfulness, right? We didn't used to need meditation and mindfulness practices in our daily routines, in our morning and evening routines, because our whole day, was a mindfulness practice where we would wake up and be present with our family while we got ready for work. We'd go to work. We would focus on one thing. You know, Thomas Edison would sit in the lab and focus on one thing for hours on end. He didn't have text messages distracting him while he was trying to invent the freaking light bulb. So (laughs) it's just, to me, again, it's a manifestation of a our minds sort of crying out for their natural state. And if we don't do it, then we're not healthy. Just like going to the gym is a a solution to something our bodies need to be healthy. So I I think it's super important, Eric. I don't Mm -hmm. mean in any way to kind of poo-poo on mindfulness as a practice. I think it's super important that people have something in their rhythm Mm -hmm. to to bring this in. But I guess my point is it's kind of a Band-Aid because we've gotten into a state of living where we don't practice using our minds the way we should. So, so I'm not saying you're poo-pooing at all either. I I think there's a distinction to be made here. There's two, two different versions. I like to think of it as a spectrum. I like to think of a lot of things as a spectrum, honestly, but so when I had first gotten into mindfulness and meditation, meditation had this really icky, scary, spooky connotation to me. I, I thought of like monks sitting on a counter, like on top of a mountain and, you know, all of the religious, spiritual, bad PR and marketing that it has. And as again, this analytical mind, I was like, that seems gross. Like I can't understand that. Right. I can't do scientific experiments on that and prove (laughs) that I'm doing anything useful here. And so my new version of thinking about this stuff is you use mindfulness as your entry point. 
mindfulness is using like headspace calm any of those apps you know sam harris i love sam harris's because he's actually a little bit deeper in the spectrum of of how to do this stuff and then meditation is the deep work meditation is where you do the introspective this is where you're like hey where am i like how do i figure myself out you know like where are my pain points here and like, how do I start untangling those mental knots? Just like you would, you know, try to go push yourself at the gym and like break your body down. It's like, where, where can I go find these knots in my own psyche that are holding me back because I'm too scared to start, you know, opening Pandora's box almost because that's, I think one of the things about this stuff is it is scary and what you're going to find is not going to be good sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like the distinction. That's not one I've drawn before between mindfulness and meditation, but mm-hmm. the, the, the things that I would say are important to me and I do have a, a meditation practice and I, I, I really believe in this as something that's important to do, but think about two things. One is just, is there something that's in your life's rhythm where you're forcing yourself to practice thinking about just one thing? Mm-hmm. And a lot of mindfulness practices, whether it's breath or, you know, a particular mantra or whatever, it doesn't matter, but just have a time set aside to get your mind focused on one thing. Cool. And for a lot of people, the first time you try that, you're going to realize how unbelievably difficult it is. <laughs> as soon as you start thinking about your breath, 10 other thoughts pop in. And so the second thing then it, it's really becoming sharper around the, the idea of metacognition, which is us thinking about thinking, <laughs> the ability to, to see the fact that we have thoughts and mm-hmm. to see a thought for what it is. And, you know, the apps you mentioned and the, the tools you mentioned really help people to become comfortable with this. But mm-hmm. as you sit in a quiet space and you practice thinking on one thing to become aware of what thoughts you are having, and just see them for what they are. And, yeah. and that's the deep work you're talking about. That to me is the heartbeat of why this is so important. You want to, for one, train your mind to be great at focus. Yeah. And for two, you want to learn how to become aware of mm-hmm. your thoughts. One, one of the ones that I would say too, is like, if you're, if you're feeling like you're, you're distracted or not really in the moment is, is they've, they use this, the company is compete to create. And they told us this one, it's, just be where your feet are. Like if you're ever feeling distracted, just wiggle your toes because how many times in a day do you ever think about your feet after you put your shoes on? And for most of us, almost never. And I just freaking love that. Cause that'll snap you right back into the present, like no other. And it is one of the coolest distinctions about like cultivating presence basically that I think it's really like sharp and distinct. And I think having things like that, where you can make distinction for yourself is, is what allows people to understand, you know, cultivating as many present moments as possible, basically. Yeah. And this is an interesting time of year for this discussion. And I love what you just said about cultivating presence. And here's a Ah. a thought exercise for everyone as they go, you know, whether, whether they're listening to this a year from now or whenever, but think about the last time you were with, family around the holidays and reflect about the conversation. And here's what I've found to be true. We are terrible at being present in our conversation and in our time with other humans. 90 something, 99% of our conversation lives in the past or in the future. And here's what I mean. What do you do when you see uncle Ben for the first time in six months over Christmas? 
Hey, Uncle Ben, how have you been? Uh-huh. And he proceeds to tell you all the stories of things that have happened in the past since the last time you saw him. And then what's the next most common question? So what are you up to? Yep. What are you going to be doing this year? <laughs> and then you start telling people about the things that you have planned for the future. And we spend all of this time catching up mm-hmm. and talking about where we're going. But almost no time at all is spent saying, oh my goodness, this, this you know, pumpkin pie that I'm eating right now is just tastes so good. And you know, the, uh, like actually talking about things that are happening right now in the present moment. Mm-hmm. We're terrible about that. So I, I love what you said there. I think cultivating presence, wiggling the toes, whatever it mm-hmm. takes, just to notice, notice things yeah. that are happening right now. What, one of the best so questions uh, that I've ever encountered as an experiment for doing this podcast, but also just in real life, not just in an interview setting uh, I've used is, is what are you most excited about right now? That is like literally that will open up so much about someone. You'll just see their face light up and they will not shut up because that is not a question people get asked very often. (laughs) I love that. It's one of my favorite questions to ask someone because it immediately brings them right to now. Basically. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's so, it is one of the most, most fun things for me to, to do as part of this thing is, is it is being able to one, have conversation and also, being better at conversation means you're able to do it better in real life. <laughs> and so it's, it's this double whammy about all of this stuff that we're talking about here that I think, you know, we've lost an art, our art form of being able to converse with each other because most of what we do is stuck through screens. So I, I don't know if for mm-hmm. you, do you have ways to separate yourself from your screens? In any way, doesn't matter. Like if it's like screen tinting, or do you have times where you're like, I'm done with my phone, or done with a laptop, it gets closed, like stuff like that. Yes, yes, I do, and yes, this is an important topic for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. For one, it is tough, right? I I do a lot of my business online, and so I'm in front of the screen a lot. And for one thing, I'm really, really intentional to not include any screen time in basically the first two hours of my day. Awesome. So, so that's the first thing that I'm really, I'll say borderline religious about. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing I I use the screen for is the the occasional timer for my, my morning meditation or yoga practice or things like that. But you know, there's zero time with me in the phone in that first two hours of my day during my, my morning routine. And then also, you know, I like to, be really focused when I can. And it's, I'll be honest, it's not all the time, Eric, but when I'm with, with other people at meals, you know, if that's at lunch uh, with a colleague or with a friend, you know, my wife is, I'm sure she'll hear this and she'll say, Hey, that's, this is not always true. But (laughs) you know, when we're together at dinner, man, the phone's got to go away Mm -hmm. to be present with other people. And so those are, those are times that I'm really careful. I don't get to shut it off during the workday much because again, I got to be I got to be where the people are and online is how I serve people. But yeah, um, those are the big ones for me during meals. That's such a special time culturally. It always has been. And it's just ruined by people sitting on their phones while they're eating. And then the morning is the other big one for me. Yeah. I I love that. I think one being religious about not grabbing your phone in the morning is huge. It's, it's, it's really hard for me because my phone, I know, I know we shouldn't have it in our rooms, but I use 
you know, music to go to sleep and things like that. So it's unfortunate that I have it, but it is a thing sometimes where I'll just grab it right away. And, you know, I try not to do that, but it is what it is. And I, I think for me, one of the bigger things that I try to do is I, I, I really think about making our devices work for us. And, and I feel this is a really deep seated responsibility as an engineer, because like we've talked about in the beginning, it, we, we've created these systems that, that inadvertently emerge as these things that more or less become dopamine drips for our brain. All these notifications that are bombarding us all day, right? All these distractions, basically. Yeah. They, they've now circumvented our dopamine systems in our brain and we are basically addicts or you could be an addict without even realizing it. And so I, I tried. Oh, no question. <laughs> right. We are addicted, man. I mean, we can pretend we're not. But yeah. Absolutely. You know, pretend we have willpower. Right. And, and I, I just think we, we need to be making, like you said, a conscious effort to say, I don't want to be that person because what winds up happening is when you make the conscious effort to not be that way, the people around you notice it without even like, and, and they won't do it. You know, even this own podcast isn't, is an example of that. When I have people here in person, I usually leave my phone on the table upside down and nobody checks their phone unless they're fact checking. And it's like for an hour and a half, that's unheard of in the modern world. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like this crazy this thing that somehow when you put people and lock them in an environment, maybe it's the headphones. I don't know what it is, but nobody reaches for their phone. And it is like this little magical moment to have people's undivided attention. And I, yeah. And it's interesting. You mentioned that Eric, cause I, I can't remember who published the study right now, but mm -hmm. there is some really interesting research that shows that when a cell phone is just sitting on the table, that the, you know, the actual brain waves, measured brain waves around the individuals in the conversation shift, they change. The, the focus isn't there. Yeah, I've the heard of that, that too. conversation is not going to be the same yeah. just by having the phone out on the table. So I, it seems innocent, but put it away. Yeah, I, I do I do agree with that. I have read that study and I was like, ooh, maybe. Because there, there's like a perception issue, uh, perception change where it's like more negative connotations and things like that. I, I do remember reading something like that mm -hmm. too. Yeah. I, it's one of the things I, I, I just make it clear that when I put it upside down, it makes it less likely for me to want to reach for it if I feel it vibrate in my pocket, if that makes sense. Because that vibration oh, sure. is just as distracting as as not even looking at it, right? <laughs> or is it looking at it? And so I, I, I try to be mindful of it as to send a clear message of like, okay, the phones are out, but like they're, they're not going to get touched because it's, you know, in plain sight of everyone. And if I'm in this conversation, you're going to know I'm distracted as I'm recording this, right? <laughs> your your yeah, voice and, and all that kind of stuff. For sure. You know, for me, sometimes a little hack that I'll use is to put my phone on airplane mode. If mm -hmm. I'm going to be doing something where I, I really just don't want to be distracted. Yeah. Uh, this would happen to me last night. It was date night with my wife. As soon as I got home and it was time for us, you know, the rest of the night is my time with her. Yeah. I put the phone on airplane mode and I don't look at it again and you know, we get home and it's time to go to bed. So it's so easy folks. <laughs> the technology allows us to control it, yeah. but we have to make that conscious choice to do it. There's a, there's an awesome medium art article called make your work. Uh, I think it's called make your phone work for you. Not the other way around or something along those lines. I've shared it before on the website and it's basically all these little hacks that you can basically set up your phone. So it's less distracting and it's like, turn off all your, 
it's very engineering-esque in many ways because it's like turn off all of your notifications basically except the ones that you need the most like you know social media you don't need to be checking like you don't need them sending you notifications what it was the there was one like this one gets really in depth it's like organize everything by alphabetically and then you folder everything as full as <laughs> as its own alphabetical like subfolder too and then you take the social media apps and you put one thing if you have an iPhone you put one thing in that folder on the front side and you have to swipe again to get to the the time sinks as i called it on my phone so i have i have to like triple tap basically to get to all of my social media apps <laughs> hey i mean that's clever i I don't do that, but I think it's the right heartbeat. You know, we have these habits already built in click, click, boom. And next thing you know, half an hour has gone on, Mm -hmm. on Facebook. So if it takes freaking five layers deep to get you to think twice about going there then do it, do it right. Something to interrupt the pattern. Mm -hmm. So what are other frameworks or modalities that you use or talk to with that have helped you break out of this stuff. So we've talked about like mindfulness. We've talked about screen time. What else do you got? You know, it it may seem cliche, but I, I really, really believe in the power of habit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think Charles Duhigg's book, the power of habits, fantastic. I think James Clear's stuff in atomic habits is fantastic, but you know, the paradigm that structure and habitual and a habitual approach to life being contrary to creativity and spontaneity and innovation is another one of these broken paradigms and fundamentally creating the lattice work of structure and habits in your life that make results automatic mm-hmm. is the foundation that you build incredible innovation and creativity on. So in my life, Eric, I do as much as I can to in in essence, automate the results that I always want to have things around health, things around mindfulness, things around, you know, daily disciplines that are important to me. Mm -hmm. And the better you can get at creating habits and rhythms about your life that are again, become automatic. Those things compound so much over time. I'll give you a little trivial example. So, you know, my morning routine, I already mentioned it's, it's pretty regimented around how I do things. And I realized that if I could just make a couple of small tweaks in the way that I structured the activities, I could probably free up an additional five minutes in my morning routine. And some of my friends made fun of me, like, what are you talking (laughs) about? Five, Five, five minutes. Yeah. Well, that five minutes got applied to the time that I read in the morning. And let's just say I could read a page a minute. I'm not a fast reader. I'm an engineer. I read like an engineer. So a page a minute. Well, five pages, man, over 300 days a year that I'm doing this, that adds up to, I mean, how many, like what, 20 more books or something that I'm going to devour this year, just because I can Mm -hmm. get through that many extra pages. And the point is like, don't underestimate the power of you know, small compounding benefits in our lives and, and living in a habitual way and stacking good habits and replacing bad habits with good habits. To me, that is an X factor to results that are bigger than you could ever imagine. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree anymore with that because it's, it's all about, you know, I've thought about this as, as like, if you can be 1% better than you were 
yesterday in whatever domain you pick. It doesn't matter what it is. Say you want to be a better, I don't know, guitar player. You, you practice five minutes every day. If you do that every day for 365 days, you'll be 365% better than you were when you started. Like it's, just, it's that simple. Like, and it, it, I think, I don't know, maybe this is a symptom of the technology that we have because of all this instant gratification and the Amazonification of the world that, you know, you get something in two days or now one day to some degree. <laughs> and, and, and we don't realize that you have to just put conscious effort into things that are important to us because and we're going back again to the distractions. It's, I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's a, an Eisenhower decision matrix and it's a two by two matrix. And it's basically, you have urgent, not important or urgent, unimportant. Oh my God. I'm getting it wrong because I'm thinking about it too much. <laughs> you have urgent, not urgent, important, unimportant. And so what winds up happening is the things that are urgent and important wind up being the things that waste the most time the things that are like meetings or the things that are like the phone call that you just got your boss told you like, Hey, you need to contact this customer because they want to come in tomorrow or whatever it is. And what you have to realize is it's the things that are important, but not urgent, which you've, we've been outlining this entire conversation is mindfulness, eating well, getting your rest in limiting screen time, focusing on your relationships, all of those things that can wait another day or wait another hour. But those are the things that we have to prioritize because those are the things that get thrown out in the gutter and we sacrifice our well-being when we do such a thing. Yeah, and the other thing with the Eisenhower matrix or, you know, people may recognize it as the Stephen Covey time management quadrants. But oh, really? I didn't know it, was, it had another name too. Yeah, yeah it's also <laughs> in the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People covers that same two by two. Wow. And, it's a good MBA thing, right? Everything in life can be be broken down into a two by two matrix. Yeah. <laughs> um, the problem that I see with so many of the clients that I work with is that they're familiar with the concept mm -hmm. of urgent, not urgent, and important, not important. Yeah. But they don't discriminate in their life carefully about the the dimension of each, and everything becomes urgent and important in their mind. Yeah. And so it's like, well, I get it, but, but I have to do this. Oh, and I have to do this too. And I have to, and, and really the, and next thing you know, it's like the whole tool becomes worthless to you because you put everything in quadrant one, it's urgent and important. So mm -hmm. I guess what I'd say is like, you got to get intentional to force discrimination through decisions yeah. around what really is important and not. And you can't just sort of say that everything in our world is of equal importance because it isn't. Yeah. I, I think it's really, so what would you say to someone who's, who's having trouble with their value system? Like how would you like guide someone through the process of finding out what they value most? Like, like say someone like they wish they could like work out a little bit more, or like maybe eat healthy or have a clearer head and be able to focus. Like how would you start walking someone through to, to be able to paint the picture for them to, to like at least get the baby steps where they can add some delineation to what is really important in their own life or for their well being, I guess. You know, there's, there's a lot of things as a coach that we would do mm -hmm. together. If I was working with a client on how to help them, discover their values if they're uncertain what they are. But, you know, the main thing I've found is that your life's story 
the narrative of your life already has all the clues to the things that you value the most. Mm-hmm. And, and whether you use a, a coach to help you discover it or you really dive in and, and self coach your way to explore those things, the first place to look is in your life. You know, what are the, the peak moments? What are the proud moments? Mm-hmm. What are the stories that come to mind when you just reflect back over your life and say, you know, in my autobiography, these are the big wins. These are the things I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. And and look deeply at those stories. And what about them makes them important to you? And then do the opposite. What are the low points? What were the, the things that I really had a big failure or something that really took me off track and is a hugely negative memory for me? And just dive in. Like, what was I feeling? What was I experiencing? Who was around? What happened? And then you want to just diagnose yeah. what, what were the things that, that made it special in our lives, positive emotion and peak experiences almost without exception feel that way mm-hmm. because we're living in perfect harmony with our values and what's most important to us. And the things that really suck almost without exception feel that way because we have <laughs> violated some core value of ours that or a rule that we set up in our life of how it's supposed to be that, we just haven't been conscious of. Yep. So that, that's where I would start with people. And then I, I think the two concepts that are important as we journey through life and try to reach our goals and achieve amazing things is pay attention to your values and, and pay attention to what I call your, your commandments. Mm. And a commandment is just how these values come to life in our behavior. Okay. So, so if, if you said, Hey, a core value of mine is my health. Okay. Okay, great. So what's your commandment around your health? And it could be measured by, hey, hey, I always want to be 150 pounds plus or minus you and, you know, eat decent. So it's however you decide to measure it, basically. Yeah, yeah. You got to decide. It's not that there's no one else gets to choose. You you get to choose. But you got to know what those things are. And, okay, we're engineers, so make a list, whatever you got to do, right? (laughs) But, But if you don't have a conscious set of decisions around your values and your commandments, then what happens is we find a goal that can be really inspiring and we start pouring all of our time and energy into the goal. And next thing you know, you're halfway to the goal, but you've gained 20 pounds and you're depressed. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? That, that's a poor balance between the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter if you're getting closer to the goal, if you hate your life the whole time on your way there. And I think values and commandments is just one of many really important things to keep in mind yeah. in the journey of life. I, I want to just say these now because I've done both of these. You don't need to do both of them. Or I've actually done like three of these now actually at this point. But it's the big five personality test is really helpful. That's a psychological framework. It's on the big five personality characteristics that are each broken into two. So there's like 10 and they all play, you know, positive, not really positive, negative, but it's like agreeableness, conscientiousness openness to new experiences, et cetera, et cetera. The other one I've done is the VIA character strengths. And that one's really useful as well. That one is built around positive psychology, if those are familiar. And then I've also done the Gallup Strength Finder 2.0. And my my engineer in me is really showing through because I just collect information. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true, man. So those, are all, those are all great tools. And I think yes. the heartbeat of it is the same for everyone to recognize self-awareness. What are your I strengths? Mean, period. Yeah. You just got to know. It, Look it, at yourself. 
Mm-hmm. Look inward and and start looking at that. And then once you can shine a light on, okay, maybe this thing is a strength. Now, where is a moment in my life that I was at my best, period? And, and like do the honest, deep work about it. Like, you know, some of this stuff, I think for a lot of people, it sounds fluffy and it sounds like, oh, it's like sunshine and roses and all of that kind of stuff. But I, I it's because the life that we live is kind of cushy and we don't have a lot of time to think about it. It's cause like, well, I got bills today. I don't have time to, to think about, <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff. It seems silly to some degree. Yeah. And Eric, for, I, I used to feel that way. So I get it. Mm-hmm. And if anybody listening is in that boat, like this is getting woo woo and I don't, I'm not into it. <laughs> here's, here's the thing I would say, put your list of heroes together. The mm-hmm. people, especially if you're an engineer and you, you're looking at business success, you know, find the, the top five people who, if your life could model their success, you would be so blown away. You know, life, life couldn't be better. Mm-hmm. Read their biography or their autobiography or, or study them, research them and tell me that they don't have an unbelievable level of self-awareness, reflection practices, meditation practices, do all the things we're talking about. You're not going to find anybody at the pinnacle of any field, whether it's sports business, you know, academia, you name it, who doesn't invest energy into the things that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think one of the cool distinctions that me and, me, me and my friends actually even talk about with, when it comes to like top performing CEOs or even leaders in many domains, they purposely keep their schedule as open as possible. And they don't think about simple things like what they're going to wear. Like think of Steve Jobs. He had a uniform because that takes mental energy that he uses to fuel his own productivity. So he's, he's purposely limiting himself to allow all of his, you know, horsepower to go into what he really cares about. So it, it might be worth just thinking about, okay, what, what are things that I don't really need to spend as much time on? Oh, no question. I mean, there are only two resources in our life that are actually limited, Eric. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows the first one. It's our time. But very few people spend uh, any of their thought on the second one, which is our energy. Mm-hmm. Right? Everything else we can get more of. Okay, we, we talk about limited money, limited fill in the blank, but, but there's always ways to get more of everything else you need if you're resourceful and you're willing to learn and grow to get there. But your time and your energy are limited. And guys like Steve Jobs and, you know, every president ever, they take those decision uh, decisions that are not important and cut them out immediately because they know my decision-making energy, my ability to apply myself to things is limited, and I'm not going to waste it on anything that's not absolutely moving me forward towards the goals and dreams that are meaningful to me. So you just mentioned CEOs and... I think one of the things that really sets CEOs apart from most people is their ability to hold true to vision and and being an entrepreneur yourself. You have to hold this vision. You are, you are in many ways, the vision of where you want to go because you don't have many employees probably yet. And, and so I would love for you to elaborate what your own vision is because it feels, it lacks as like a true North to make sure like, am I going in the right direction? And I think we all can create our own visions regardless of whether or not you're actually a CEO. Cause I guess we're all the CEOs of our own life. If you really think about it. Yeah. Eric, I, I love the topic of vision so much. And 
You know, the guy who taught me more about vision than anyone else alive, his name's Ari Weinschweig. He's out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. He owns the company Zingerman's. For anybody who's uh, a Michigander, they would know of Zingerman's. It's a really, at this point, world-famous deli Mm. um, in Ann Arbor and, and really amazing. But Ari is a guy who is visionary through and through and teaches about vision. And his definition, I have memorized because it's so good. He says, vision is a picture of what success looks like at a particular point in time in the future, described Mm. in rich emotional detail such that you know when you have arrived. And it was a huge paradigm shift for me when I studied with Ari on vision and did some workshops with him and met him personally because vision, when I got out of college, was a one-liner on the wall of the office at Whirlpool, right? And and it was this sort of grandiose, almost trite statement that a bunch of MBAs and, and highly paid consultants probably spent a bunch of time at a fancy hotel somewhere putting together. And not to discredit the Fortune 500 and how incredible these organizations are, but the reality is there's nothing inspiring about some of these, you know, one-line visions that are out there. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, vision is something where you can actually take yourself in your mind's eye to that place in the future and imagine what it's going to be like when you get there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the kind of thing for me that when I wake up in the morning, the smile on my face and the energy in my body when my feet hit the ground is driven by this vision. And if it's not doing that in your life, then you don't have a vision. Vision is something that actually gets you out of bed in the morning. Vision is that thing that, that pulls you through those tough times. So when it's hard and when it sucks and you're like, come on, is, is, could anything else go wrong? You can t- always turn to the vision and say, it's worth it to press through this to get there. So anyway, I, I could go on, on, on and on about that, but let me tell you about my vision. Then. So Awako is based off the idea of being an oasis of courage. And the metaphor that describes this best and and the vision where I put myself in the vision is based off the quote from Teddy Roosevelt about it's not the critic who counts. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but I, I can't quote it all from memory, but he basically describes that, you know, it's not the critic who counts. It's the man who's in the arena, the one whose face is marred by, by sweat and blood and who's actually doing the deed. And we want to get out of the bleachers and out of the grandstands of being a critic and get into the arena of our life. And the vision for Oeko is to, to be a vehicle, an oasis that helps people recognize, for one, you got to first get into the arena. All right. You can't get the things you want in your life if you're sitting on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. So you got to get the game. You got to get into the arena. But then the problem, Eric, is being in the arena means you're going to get punched in the face. <laughs> like it's not, it's not always easy mm-hmm. and, and life's going to hit you. And if you go for big dreams, you're going to get knocked down. You know, it's, it's not like you're at a crossroads and if you turn left, you're going to succeed. And if you turn right, you're going to fail. It's one journey. And between you and success is a bunch of failures. Mm-hmm. So you got to get in the arena. When you get punched in the face, then where do you go? And the problem is a lot of people run back to the bleachers and sit down next to the critic and start blaming and complaining and pointing to 
to problems in the world around us. Yep. And once you do that, it's hard to get back into the arena again because it hurt. So I want this business and I want to be personally that third place where when you get knocked down in the arena of your life, you go to the oasis of courage to be recharged, to be renewed, mm -hmm. to find strength, to find encouragement and accountability, and then enter back into the arena and keep going. And that's what Awaco is. And practically speaking, man, I want to, I want to be involved in helping engineers and technical professionals mm -hmm. learn how to live a full and complete life, their whole self tapping into this emotional side, being yep. able to, to master the strategies, the tactics, the, the first principles like we talked about and, and really use everything at their disposal to create success, not just in their career, but in their families, you know, in their communities and in whatever your values point you toward. And, and I think that there's so much that I've learned that I can help people to do that, mm -hmm. that if, if I can create that kind of place um, and coach people to that kind of life, then that's the vision of success that I'll know, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, yeah. the more people I can help live that way, the more on mission and on you know, reaching the vision it's going to be for me. So I don't know if that helps a little bit just to, to just describe it in that metaphor. Obviously Absolutely. there's a lot of really <laughs> practical things that need to happen and in people's lives to, to live and enjoy it. But that's where I'm headed, man. I mean, it's, I think it's all about frameworks. And I think the, the unique view that you have of this as someone who is, you know, in many ways, the, the, the shining example of what many people wish they were as an, as a technical professional or someone who was an engineer and, and you, your, your prime example of like, Hey, this is what happens. You know, I should have been happy at where I was and then all of a sudden it's like you have this moment where you're like, oh, okay, everything's not as good as it thought it was. You know, you have mm -hmm. the outward trappings of success, but the internal, you know, what is success internally for you and, and the deep, you know, human aspects of what we all need, right? We can pretend like we don't need certain things like relationships and positive environments and feel like we're loved or expressing ourselves completely and fully. Right. And again, that's kind of treading scary waters as an engineer, because that sounds very wooey, but it it's, there's this component there that's missing for a lot of technical people. And I think trying to shine a light on that and, and painting that picture, at least to make it seem not as intangible is really important. Yeah. And Eric, I think it's super important to, to just take a moment and, and say this, that we got to give ourselves permission mm -hmm. to face what is real in our story and our life. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, I'm going to go into some taboo things just really quick. Like <laughs> if you're a, if you're a middle-class white engineer and you make good money and you know, you have a wife and a kid and you live in the suburbs the kind of cultural undertone of that is you're, you're not allowed to have problems because what problems do you have? Like you, you make great money, you got a family, you got all these things like your life should be fine. You're not allowed to have problems. And so I don't say that in any way to discredit the types of things other people than that person deal with. But the point is that person still has real pain in their life. If you're listening and you're that person, like, it's okay yeah. to just face the reality that 
what is real in your journey and your story may hurt or be as unfulfilling as any other problem that anyone else is facing. And so it's not about who you are or any of these other topics. It's just every single human listening now and that you're ever going to meet has something in their story that causes real pain. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how trivial it may seem in comparison to something else because your life is not a comparison. It's your life. Yeah. I, I think that one of the best ways to think about this is, is pain or stress or anything like that. That's an emotion. We, we like to externalize it and compare ourselves to other people and say, well, this person went through that and I should be happy because my life is so easy compared to theirs. And that is completely disingenuous to one yourself and, and just totally wrong. Because I think when you have stress, like watermarks, it's a threshold and it's, it's like, it's like you have a high watermark. And so someone who like, you know, just to use an extreme example, someone who went into the military and saw war, their watermark for stress and pain. And you know, if they got injured or something is way higher than yours if you just are this middle-class person that we were painting this picture before. So, it, mm -hmm. you know, you're, just to say your pain is equivalent or not equivalent to another person's is completely wrong because that for you might be your 11, whereas that to another person may be their five. But that doesn't mean exactly. it's not real. It doesn't mean it doesn't right. matter that much to you. It, it, That's right, man. <laughs> yeah. Two people who are underwater are both drowning. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter if relatively speaking, it's different in their world, they're drowning. Yep. So I guess I wanted, wanted to make that give, give yourself permission to yep. look and say, I'm drowning. And you know, if it's whatever you got to do, uh, get a coach or, or get a counselor or, or just face that for the first time. I think it's super important. I think and the world unfortunately, is around this stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're, exactly. I mean, just us two as two male engineers talking about this. I think that yeah. I mean that shows that shows something about the, the cultural yeah. shift of being able to be vulnerable and say, "Hey, I've hurt and I've processed emotions." What? What? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I I talk about this all the time because that was one of the things that really drew me to to podcasting because it was the ability to be vulnerable. Right. And as males, again, there's a taboo word. Right. And I, I'm, I'm going to pull on this taboo thread because you opened it because I think it's really important. <laughs> and I think being able to come to terms and say, hey, maybe I'm not actually perfect because we like to pretend like we're all like or society seems like we should be perfect. When in reality, we're all just kind of groping through through the world and just doing what we think is best in the moment. Ninety percent of the time, because we don't know how it's going to turn yes. out. You know, I, I can have yep. these ideas and these things and say, yeah, I'm going to do that. But you don't know it's going to work out at the end. It's just, I'm going to try. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and since we are, you know, probably talking in some cases to a lot of engineers here, or mm -hmm. at least if you are one, let's, I'll land a plane on this. You, okay. you don't do it just because it's taboo or because it's culturally cool to come and be vulnerable right now. The, the reason to consider what we're talking about is because it actually works in getting results in your life for both achievement and fulfillment. And you're going to love the quality of your life more yeah. if you'll do it. And I've experienced that myself and I've coached so many other people through this and the, consistently 100% of the time people's everyday quality of life goes through the roof when you press into these things. So don't do it because it's popular. Yeah. Do it because desire a result in your life 
that's worth it. I, I mean, like, I think that goes for all this stuff that we've talked about, including med- mindfulness and meditation, right? As, exactly. as these things, as these things get more popular and more people are like, oh yeah, you got to try doing that. You know, it's like going to try like matcha tea or something like that. That's kind of, or CBD isn't like another huge thing right now, or at least it's growing. So it's like, don't just do these things because other people are doing it. Like do it because you want to like actually work on yourself. It, it's because it's, it, it's disingenuous to yourself, I think, to to just do it because everybody else is doing it, right? <laughs> Following mm-hmm. the crowd is 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 not what this is about. This is, and this this is like my my vision in in a condensed form. But it, it comes down to having knowledge. Using with knowledge comes responsibility. You know, and and then the the longer form of that is is that. Once you have the the knowledge and the responsibility, it's then providing frameworks and blueprints for people so that they can live and learn to just lead more fulfilling life, period. And that's that's as far as this goes. And this is this conversation, I think, is a huge, you know, it it aligns exactly with all of this because just throwing as as much as as we can at people and say, here's what seems to work. Now go do it. Like, go break it. (laughs) Be the engineer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is, it's really important for me to do this stuff. And and I I think this is just a testament of like what kind of people it attracts when you actually get really clear about what you stand for. And it sounds a lot like when you mentioned your, one of your mentors and his definition of vision, it sounds a lot like Pete Carroll. I've, I've learned from Pete Carroll through, through other mindset companies and stuff like that. And he's, an exemplar in the space of creating cultures and creating groups of people that it's not built about like you're, you kind of mentioned the fortune 500 companies and how it seems not disingenuous, but doesn't, it's a little hollow. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think for me, it's, it's about elevating the individual to, to the, as the prime mover, because if you can get people not really out of their own way, but you, you, unlock that spark within them, that, that flame that's just waiting for the right Tinder or the little thing that whatever it is, the need that, that they can go take it on their own. That is what moves the needle over the long term because that person then helps their friend or their family or whoever it is because they're, you know, self-actualized to be able to do it for others with without even really meaning it. Because if you feel like you're good about yourself, then you're going to keep doing that. And then other people are going to notice because you're going to have quote unquote more left over. Yeah. I, I, there's a lot of ways we could describe it, but I can't even imagine how much potential is left on the table mm-hmm. and potential is such a loaded word right now, especially, but it's like but, passion. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, but, but here's the bottom line. We'll say it this way. Every single person in our companies, in our world around us has more to offer than they're offering today. We're all capable of growth. We're all capable of more. Mm -hmm. And if the culture of the company is one where everyone recognizes that, seeks that and desires to become the best they can be at whatever they're passionate about. I mean, there's just so much incredible things that could happen if we if we do that. So I love how you describe that as the individual, as the primary mover. I think that's great. I, I, I just think it's this missing thing with, within the world. Like if, if I'm trying to paint this picture of like, why, like kind of what we're talking about is, is this idea of like recovery. Like instead of looking at productivity as the major metric for your people, 
you know, like looking at Pareto principle, I guess, if we're going to keep throwing out fancy words that people like to throw around, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. also known as the, the 80, 20. And if, if you look at that and I think productivity is in many ways, the wrong thing, because as, as modern world gets more and more roboticized and automated and all this stuff, the thing that we don't notice is that it still takes a human element, the human capital to run the businesses. There are still people at the end of the day that got to deal with customers, deal with the problems that the robots and automation can't handle. And to me, that comes down to with prioritizing the value structures, i.e. recovery. And that means, are they moving? Are they sleeping? Are they eating? Are they having fulfilling relationships? You know, are they overworked, like overstressed? And can you, to paint this to a business is if a person is recovered well every day, they're already more productive. They go home feeling fulfilled. They have enough to feel like they can be meaningful impacts in their relationship that they care about in whatever role that happens to be, be it a parent, be it go to the gym and whatever category they decide to show up in, they just do better. And, And it's, that's, I think the biggest thing. And that's why you're seeing, I think, like calm and the mindfulness industry explode because it's helping bridge this gap into this paradigm of prioritizing recovery. And this is my word. And I don't even know where this is going to go because I think I just came up with it as a, as a, as a quality problem for my engineering class and nobody else. I have never heard anyone else talk about this idea and I'm giving it away. And I don't know if I'm, I'm probably going to shoot myself for that one, but it's okay. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I get really fired up about this because I wear both a whoop and or a ring that measure my sleep and recovery and I'm super bullish about like understanding how your body responds to stress and like what are the stresses that you're accumulating on your body to perform better. It's, I, you know, I, I could be on my soapbox all day with this. <laughs> you know, but Eric, here's the bottom line. Napoleon Hill, I think probably gets more credit than most for this idea, mm-hmm. but it's not a new idea by any means. Um, the, the most powerful people on the planet are always going to be the ones who are able to organize the creative energy and the imagination of the most other people. Mm -hmm. And, and it's that organized effort of human capital to your point, that is always going to be the deciding factor of ultimate, you know, influence and power in the world. And there's only so much you can do with, you know, machine and automation, unless you're a, a matrix uh, destiny kind of believer, yeah. which I'm not, but you know, so at some point, if you cannot influence the people around you and organize the effort of those people, well, then you'll always be limited in terms of the power that you can, can gain in, in the world around you. Awesome. Yeah. You know, we've, we're almost at an hour and a half already and we could easily go for many, many hours at this point. So, you know, there's always around around two on the horizon if we want to, in, at a future day. And so I think at this point we could start wrapping up with some of more general questions. You already mentioned a whole bunch of books, but are there any books that you like to gift people or have just been super impactful for your own life? Yeah. You know, probably the, the book I've gifted the most is how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. I mm-hmm. think it's, it really should not be optional reading in my mind. Everybody should read it Uh and probably should read it every year until you actually (laughs) practice everything that's in it. 
just such an important set of simple, simple principles that your, your grandparents tried to teach us, you know, teach you, but we didn't listen. So that's one, you know, then for me, I think the book rich dad, poor dad probably changed my thinking about life as much as any. I like, uh, awaken the giant within by Tony mm-hmm. Robbins. That book is fantastic. And maybe a more recent one, something different for people who are listening here, especially with all the sort of soft stuff we've talked about the book, the artist's way by Julia Cameron Okay, is a really, really good book. And she, for me has helped my ability to be present and that book and some of the practices that she presents in that book, you know, two in particular, the, the practice of morning pages, Oh yeah, which I <laughs> do in my morning routine. That's a Julia Cameron thing. And also the artist's date. And I won't spoil it. You should get the book, um, The Artist's Way, and really, really great way to... It's so funny. You're echoing, you're literally echoing an artist who, who just said these same exact things. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> well, I, I Serendipity I think, happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's really good, especially for me, coming from an engineering background, I want to, again, be a whole person. I want to mm-hmm. learn how to use all of all of my mind and all of my faculties and emotions to my advantage. And so that, that's a book I highly recommend to start tapping into that side of your life. I couldn't agree more, man. I, it took me a long time to understand what creativity was. Like I, my brother is a graphic designer and I would look at what he did and I'm like, oh, he's a photographer. He does graphic design. I'm an engineer. I like numbers and straight lines and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't do creativity. It took a long, like probably two years of me recontextualizing that creativity is a much broader category than we like to believe. <laughs> <laughs> you and I are going to be discovering what creativity is for the rest of our lives. Eric. Absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't agree with that even more. It's always about mm-hmm. discovery. You never know. Mm-hmm. Nothing is ever solidified, right? You can't ever know truth. And by capital teachers, I mean. <laughs> so as a final closing question, and this has probably been echoed through the entire conversation, but if there's any advice you would give a college age student who's smart driven just entering the real world, what would you do? Or what would you tell them to avoid? Be decisive. You know, you, you got to take action and just kind of go for it. Especially engineers. We get so caught up in analysis and we spend time in a state of indecision, trying to think and figure stuff out. And we, we tell ourselves a story that we're serving ourselves by, you know, being careful to make the right decision. And the reality is you're just living in fear about making the wrong one. And, and here's the deal, man. Like we said earlier, our actions are, are driven by emotion in the end anyway. So if you don't know what to do right now, you're not going to suddenly figure it out by collecting (laughs) more data for years and years and like a hundred people's advice isn't going to, somehow make it clear. It's just going to make it even more confusing. And at the end of the day, the antidote to analysis paralysis, the antidote to indecision is to make more decisions. Mm -hmm. Just go and get experiences and and go try things and learn. Right. So I guess that'd be my, my bottom line advice. I I was just too careful when I was coming out of school. And so be decisive. I love it. It's awesome. And as final closing, we'll have links in the show notes and on the website and all that stuff. But where can people connect with you, find your Oasis of Courage and all that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, I mean, www.oasisofcourage.com is the website. People can go check that out. I hang out on on LinkedIn. It's Zach White. Uh, you can search for OACO, O-A-C-O as well if you want to find me there. But, you know, Instagram at Oasis of Courage is the handle, Facebook, et cetera. But, you know, people are welcome to just email me directly. If you have a question or a thought, it's Zach, Z-A-C-H, at oasisofcourage.com. Awesome. Thanks, Zach. This has been a incredibly powerful conversation. And I think you've, you're on an awesome journey here and, you know, it it came with a lot of bumps to get you on this path, but I think you're, you're on the rebound at the very least. It's awesome to hear that other people like yourself are, are doing their own thing like this. It fires me up. Like, seriously, it's awesome. Thanks a lot, Eric. I hope, you know, if one person somewhere got some value that changes their life, then it's worth it. I love Mm -hmm. what you're doing and really appreciate you having me on, man. Thanks, man. It means a lot. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, Go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.